Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, our text this morning begins verse 8 and runs to verse 22. As we are continuing to see out of the, the, the first section of this letter, remember, we rejoiced in the living hope um, that God has granted us because we've been born again. That's how the, the letter opens. Peter calls upon us to rejoice because we've been born again to a living hope through the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so because we've been made new people, because we've been born again, how then shall we live? Well, we've been seeing different ways that Peter calls us to live in the light of the gospel. And this morning, he, he calls us to live out this Christian life in the midst of a hostile world. Yes, the world is hostile. Yes, it opposes us. But because of the difference that Jesus Christ has made in our lives, how do we live? How do we respond? That's what Peter is going to talk to us about this morning. But in order to hear what Peter has to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit's help to illuminate our hearts and minds. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we do ask uh, that you would come and that you would meet with us around your word this morning. Indeed, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes of faith so that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Grant, O Lord, that we might rejoice in living hope and so as a result live differently. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you probably didn't see this internet kerfuffle back last May, uh, but the online journal or online version of the journal First Things published an article by their associate editor named James Wood uh, that was a critique of our friend Tim Keller. Uh, in, in the essay, uh, James Wood argued that, that Keller's approach to ministry, to defending the gospel, to engaging cities might have worked back in 1989 when the world was at least neutral to the gospel or maybe even positive towards the gospel. But, but now, 30 years later, um, the world is incredibly hostile. It's a negative world in its, in its response to the gospel. And so And so Tim's approach no longer works, no longer applies. Well, part of the reason why the the critique brought about a kerfuffle was uh, this guy was going after Tim Keller, and you better put on your big boy britches if you're going to do that. Um, So there was some of that. Um, But but part of the reason why I mention it is because it, it operated on a set of false assumptions, namely this. Anyone who's paid attention to the New Testament as the church has tried to do for 2,000 years, we've never assumed that the world is positive to the gospel. Never. We've never really even, if you pay attention to the New Testament, assumed that the world is neutral to the gospel. Now, if you pay attention to the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, it's quite clear that, that the world around us, the world in which we've operated since Jesus ascended to the Father almost 2,000 years ago, is hostile to the gospel. Oh, and that hostility may take different forms and may, may come out in different ways, but, but the world is hostile to the gospel. We live in a hostile world. Now, to be sure... It does seem as though the last 20 years we've experienced greater hostility from the world around us, and especially even in our, in our own place here in Memphis, Tennessee, which has, is still a place where you can, within three questions, ask somebody where they go to church. Still, it's the case that the world's become more hostile and more difficult for us as we talk about Jesus. Still, it's the case the world's always been hostile to the gospel of Jesus, the, the, the question isn't whether the world is hostile. The question is, how then will we live? How then will we live in the midst of a hostile world? It's those who have been born again to a living hope by, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How then shall we live? How do we live in the light of what Jesus said in John chapter 15 when he said, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. They will treat you this way because of my name. How then should we live? Well, part of the reason why Peter's written this letter is to help us. Remember, Peter writes this letter, the letter we call 1 Peter, somewhere between AD 60 and AD 64. The emperor during that time wasn't a man who was notably friendly to the Christian faith. His name was Nero. 
Some point after Peter writes 1 Peter and towards mm, close after he writes 2 Peter, he would actually be arrested and crucified upside down for the cause of Christ. The reason why tradition has it Peter was crucified upside down was because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same fashion as Jesus was. But, but Peter writes this letter, 1 Peter, and he'll write 2 Peter as well in the clear understanding that what Jesus said is true. So, if this is our reality, that we live in a hostile world, a world that's hostile to the gospel, how then should we live? What difference does the gospel of Jesus make as we experience difficulty and suffering, as we experience opposition and, and difficulty? What's our response? How do we respond? Well, Peter tells us in verse 8. Did you see it? Chapter 3, verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then Peter goes on to quote from Psalm 34. So we can summarize Peter's response to a hostile world this way. When we are cursed, when we suffer for the gospel's sake, when we are opposed for Jesus' sake, we bless. We bless because we've been blessed by God. And in this way, we become a blessing for others and God himself continues to bless us. And what does that mean? What does it mean when Peter says, uh, don't revile, but bless? Is he, is he really a southerner at heart? I mean, if, if this was the English southern version, would, would Peter be really saying, just say bless their hearts? Oh, bless you. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. Now, what does it mean to be blessed? Well, Peter tells us in verse 8, to be blessed by God in and through Jesus Christ is to have these five virtues driven into your heart by the work of the Spirit. What are the five virtues? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to be a new person means you have these five virtues already in Jesus. That's the first thing he wants you to understand. These virtues that he names, they're not something you have to work up to. They're already yours in Christ. Think about it. You and I, we have a common hope in Jesus Christ. We have a unity of faith in him because of the work of the Holy Spirit and as he's taken his word and caused us to be born again, caused us to become new people, we have a unity of faith, a common hope. We have a mutual sympathy and brotherly love because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. Already, because of the Spirit's work, we care for one another. We sympathize with one another. We're, we're compassionate towards each other. We, we're humbled before Christ as we trust in him. But not only do we, do we have these five virtues, Peter's actually calling us to, to exercise these virtues that we already have. These are virtues that we have and are to perform. And so we have a common hope and faith in Christ. 
But we have to work at being like-minded. We have to stay in the unity of the faith. We have a mutual sympathy with each other. But we, we actively sympathize as well. We put our sympathy into action. We, we weep with those who weep. We, we have brotherly love, but we are to keep on loving one another, to not let our love for each other grow cold or stale or stagnant. We're humbled before Christ, but we're also to continue to clothe ourselves with humility, you see. These, these virtues with which Christ has blessed us by the working of the Holy Spirit as we've been born again, as we are no people, are, are virtues that we have, but we're also to exercise. But the second thing to notice here is that these virtues which we have and which we are to exercise, they are vital for dealing with those who oppose us. I mean, think about it. When, when your boss or your coworker is hostile because of your faith, if you have like-mindedness with other believers in Jesus Christ, if you have a common hope, a common faith in Jesus, you're, you're much less likely to be shaken in your faith. I mean, to be sure, you may be in a workplace where there are no other believers, but as you come here week by week and you know there are other brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in the faith who love Jesus and believe the same things you do, your boss's attacks upon you for Jesus' sake, they're, they're not going to shake you. I mean, to be sure, they'll be troubling, but you'll know I've got other friends here that I see every week who believe the very same things about Jesus that I do. I will not be shaken. Or, or when your spouse rejects you and even persecutes you because of Jesus, because, because you're determined to follow after Jesus and follow his way and not, not do what he or she desires you to do and it's going to lead you away from Christ, to, to know that you have sympathy, to know that you have brotherly love, that there are brother, brotherly love, that you have brothers and sisters in this place who love you, who care about you. It's a salve to your soul. It helps sustain you, helps sustain your witness in a difficult marriage situation or, or when your best friend turns on you because of your faith. A tender heart, a humble mind is necessary so that you don't become hardened to that one. I mean, you remember that, that God was tender-hearted towards you, compassionate towards you, because there was once a time when you were not part of God's people. There was once a time when you did not know mercy, but now because of the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life, you've become part of God's people. You've been shown God's mercy because of God's tender-hearted compassion towards you. If God's that way towards you, shouldn't you be that way towards your friend? Even though they've rejected you, even though they've turned against you? Don't you see? These virtues that are, are yours already in Christ that you're to activate and to perform, they're vital. They're vital when people act in a hostile way towards you for the cause of Christ. You've been blessed so that you might bless. That's what Peter says, isn't it? Verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may attain a blessing. What do we want to do? When someone is hostile towards you, when someone's harsh towards you, someone reviles you, what do you want to do? Well, if you're like me, you want to punch them back. 
You want to be harsh back. You want to revile back. That's what we want to do. But because we're new people, we've been made new people, we've been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives, because we have these virtues, what do we do instead? We, we bless. We don't revile. We don't trade insult for insult. Instead, when we get treated evil in an evil fashion, when we get treated harshly, when we're reviled, we show kindness, steadfast love, compassion. Ed Clowney, the, the former PCA pastor, former president of my alma mater, Westminster Theological Seminary, he observed in, of this passage, he said, this is how Christians get even. This is how we get even. We pay evil back with good, insults with blessing. How do you get even? I'll tell you how I get even. You know, someone yells at me, someone cuts me off in traffic, someone's harsh towards me. There's everything inside of me that wants to get even, to treat them the same way they've treated me. But Ed is exactly right. What Peter is calling us to here is to get even in a completely different way because we are new people in Jesus Christ. Because, in fact, we've been blessed with these virtues. We, we get even by treating those who deal with us harshly or do evil to us, we, we treat them kindly. We bless them. We do good to them. What does that look like? Well, that's why Peter quotes Psalm 34. We seek the other's good. We pray for their salvation. We desire to benefit them. Peter says, quoting Psalm 34, let, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So here's the question for you. Think about this past week. When you knew conflict, when you knew reviling, how did you keep your tongue from evil? Did you keep your tongue from evil? How did you edit yourself? You know, in the same way that you might write an email and say, ah, that's not exactly the way I want to say it, and you edit it. How did you edit yourself in that conversation? Maybe in writing that email. Maybe as you were on social media. How did you edit yourself? How did you seek wholeness and peace? In what ways did you actively do good to and for someone else, that someone else who's actually done evil to you, who's actually been harsh towards you, actually slandered you? As we make our way through a hostile world, we model a different response from our neighbors around us. We, we model a different response from our old selves. Because we know we've been blessed, we seek to bless others. But friends, that's only possible because we've learned to revere Christ as Lord. Our temptation is to fear the hostile world. That's really the problem, isn't it? The reason why we strike out, the reason why we revile, the reason why we're harsh is because we are afraid. We, we're fearful, but for those who love Jesus, we have a different way. What, what does Peter say? Verse 14, he says, have no fear of them, right? Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness 
and respect. So what does that mean? What does it mean to honor Christ the Lord as holy? How does that help us so that we might suffer what is right? Well, part of it has to do with, with our attitude. Is it literally Peter is saying here, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That is, set him apart as holy. Honor him as holy. I like the, the way the NIV renders this. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. It's this attitude of honor and revering Christ as king instead of fearing and, and revering others as king over us. Because we don't fear others, their response, what they think of us, how they're going to treat us, because we've come into relationship with Jesus Christ, we've been made new people in him because he's touched us and changed us. Because of all of that, we set him apart. We honor him. We, we seek him because he's touched us so. Um, we know what that means when certain people have touched us in such a way that we revere them, we honor them. Uh, at least those of us who lived in St. Louis, we, we knew what that meant because we, we all learned to revere Stan Musial. I, I think I've told you this story before of the time I, I actually got to meet Stan the man Musial, but I'm going to tell you it again because it fits right here. Uh, I was having lunch at a local restaurant with my friend Clay Smith, and I was sitting with my back to the door, and Clay was facing the door, and we were getting ready to leave, and he said, don't look now, but here comes the man. I'm like, what? And around the corner comes Stan the man Musial with his entourage, and they actually sit two boos down from us, and I'm like, oh my word, that's Stan Musial, don't be a groupie and make a scene. So I, I played it cool, didn't really do anything, didn't look over at him. We paid our bill, and I was putting my coat on, and I had this baseball coat that was a, a Louisville Slugger jacket. And one of Stan's entourage says, hey, hey, you know who's one of the greatest to ever swing one of those bats you got on your jacket? I was like, yeah, well, yeah, duh, Stan the man. He said, well, you know who this is, don't you? I said, well, duh, Stan the man. You want to meet him? Hey, Stan, meet one of your fans. And Stan Musial whips around and sticks out his fist. And I got to fist bump with Stan the man Musial. And I didn't wash my hand for like a week. Because that's what happens, right? When, when we are touched by certain people, when we get to fist bump with our, our hero, we, we revere them. And yet in a much greater way. Because Christ Jesus has, has touched us, has changed us, transformed us. We revere Christ. We honor him. We, we set him apart in our hearts, in our attitudes. He's the king. He's the man, if you will. He's the one who rules in such a way that we don't fear the faces of others because we've come into relationship with him. And, and this attitude will shape your actions. And the answers that you give toward others. Yeah, even when people are hostile towards us, we answer them with good words and with good deeds. Notice the good words of verse 15. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope, that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now that word there in verse 15 for defense is the word apology, from which we get the, our word apologetics, this, 
the word that we, we use or the discipline that we observe that, that stands for the defense of the gospel. In seminaries where I've taught, those who, who taught apologetics would offer a full-fledged kind of philosophical defense of the faith, and that's important. I don't th- think that's what Peter is going for here. I don't think what Peter is saying is when the world's hostile towards you because you are a follower of Jesus, you need to be able to give a full-fledged philosophical defense of the Christian faith. I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, what I think he's saying is, is because you've been blessed by God with these virtues that enable you to bless others when you've been reviled, in those moments that you are, have, have revered Christ, you've set him apart because he's changed you and trust and touched you, be ready to give a word in, in defense of Jesus. Be ready to give a witness. Be ready to tell what great things Jesus has done for you. I've mentioned this before, but it's one of the things that I've so admired about my wife, Sarah, as we've been on this cancer journey, is that over these two years we've been doing this, she's, she's had a remarkable ability to give a word, just a, a defense, a, a witness. Hey, did you know there's lots of people praying for you? I've been praying for you as you deal with me, doctor, as you deal with me, nurse. And to, to seize on that opening, um, whether it's an unbeliever or someone who's, who's a pagan, whether it's a Christian and they might rejoice together, just taking the opportunity to to bring good words to bear, to say, this is what my Savior has done for me. We can all do that. We don't need to to read high-level philosophers or contemporary apologists to be able to tell what Jesus has done for us. This, This Savior who's rescued me from the pit this friend who's come to me in the midst of my depression, this this Lord who's broken the power of reigning sin, this priest who's cleansed my conscience with his blood, this prophet who charts the way for my path. We we can say something about him, can't we? But notice Peter doesn't simply encourage us to answer with good words, but also with good deeds. He, He goes on in verse 16 and he says, having a good conscience so that... When you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ, may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so there are good deeds involved. We do good to those who seek to harm us. We seek their peace and flourishing. These aren't just words. This is the very form of the Christian life in this world. And and when in the face of great hostility, good words and good deeds flow from honoring Christ the Lord, the result is a powerful witness to the reality of the gospel. Remember back to 2015, that horrible scene at, at Mother Emanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina, when Dylan Roof came into a Wednesday night prayer meeting and shot nine brothers and sisters in Christ? It was horrible. Horrific. We can't imagine that kind of horror happening here. And yet it did. It happened in Charleston. You remember what happened afterwards? When Ruth came to trial, Anthony Thompson, whose wife Myra was killed, he urged Dylan to repent, to trust in Christ, to know forgiveness for his sins, and even this sin. Nadine Collier telling him to his face, I forgive you. I forgive you for what you've done. May God have mercy upon you. Others who expressed the same thing at the time, 
The media didn't know what to think about this. These, these brothers and sisters in Christ who've known such horror, looking at the man who's perpetrated it all and good words and good deeds, not reviling but blessing. They didn't know what to do with it. Later, a prize-winning book was written by the entire thing. But, but when the world sees these kinds of things happening, good words, good deeds, as we bless those who do harm to us, seek to revile us, they say, oh, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when Christ is Lord. That's what it looks like when, when people are born again. They don't wage war against those who wage war against them. They, they bless with good words and good deeds. But how's that possible? How's it possible for Christians to live this way? What's the reason? The gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus. That's, that's the only reason. That's what Peter tells you. In verse 18, he, he, he connects. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why? For, for this reason, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, Peter comes right back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he had already uh, emphasized Christ's death for sinners in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. That's with the precious blood of Christ that you've been redeemed. And in chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, he quotes all these sections from Isaiah 53 and reminds us that it's by Christ's wounds we have been healed. But, but here... The particular focus is not only on Christ's suffering and substitution, the righteous for the unrighteous, but it's especially on his victory over the enemies. Now, as we read this together this morning, or maybe you read it prior to coming to church to prepare for the sermon, you probably read verses 18 to 22 and said, oh boy, what in the world is that all about? Well, let me say right now that this is probably the most controverted passage in the entire New Testament. Um, entire books have been written to explain these four verses. And since I am running out of time, I'm not going to rehearse what all of those books say. Let me just focus on the main point, which is this. Peter is telling us that Christ's death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension serve as the motivation and power for living in the hostile world. That's what he's saying here in verses 18 to 22. Verse 18, he speaks particularly of Christ's crucifixion. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, crucifixion, but made alive in the spirit. I think that's a reference to the resurrection, which he picks up again at the end of verse 21. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. What's that? That's the ascension. And so verses 18 and 22, which bookend the section, stress the great facts of the gospel. Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. And these great facts are transformative. They enable us to stand against the forces of evil around us. Why? Because they demonstrate Christ's victory over, verse 22, the angels, authorities, and powers. A victory that was actually announced. 
Through Christ's resurrection, he went and proclaimed his victory over demonic powers. I think that's what verse 19 is making reference to. He announces his victory over demonic powers, the very demonic powers that were active all the way back in Noah's own day. In Noah's day, God had patiently waited even in the midst of an evil world. He, he showed his goodness and mercy. He attempted to draw people back to repentance. But eventually, God's judgment came. And only those who were in the ark were saved. Peter goes on to say, similarly, today, our world is hostile. Our world is evil. It's as evil as Noah's own day. It's dominated by evil and demonic powers. But there's still a way through the floods of judgment. Baptism, and especially that to which baptism points. Namely, a conscience which has been cleansed through faith in Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Christ has gained victory. He's gained victory through those great movements of the gospel. But listen, because Christ is one, because Christ is one, we don't need to defend ourselves. I mean, Christ is one. The, the hostile world that's being driven by demonic forces of evil, and we feel it intensely in our day, Christ has already defeated them. Those demonic powers, he, they've already heard Christ's victory call as the resurrected Christ spoke to those, those demonic powers and say, I am your conqueror. Through my death, through my resurrection, through my ascension, I'm seated at the right hand of the Father on high. I rule over all principalities and powers. I have won. And because Christ is one, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to fight. We don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to wage war on those who wage war on us. Rather, Peter tells us we are to rest on Christ. We are to revere him as our Lord while we bless others in Jesus' name. Listen, y'all, that's hard. And honestly, it's as difficult a word as what we talked about last week. Every preacher that I've ever known coming to the passage we had last week says, oh boy, I got to talk about submission. All Christians to government, slaves to masters, wives to husbands, that's a hard word. But this is just as difficult a word to tell you that Jesus is one, that he's triumphed over the powers. And because he has, and because he's touched you and changed you, you don't have to revile. You don't have to strike back. You can actually bless. You actually can point others to Jesus with good words and good deeds. It, you may actually suffer. But even while you suffer, God will still care for you and bless you. That's a difficult word. But it's the word that, that Jesus has for us today. This is how we are called to live as those who've been born again. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would help us to, to hear and to, to embrace this difficult word. Lord, everything inside of us, our entire flesh, wants to push back, wants to strike back when others are harsh or revile against us or slander us in some way but to bless, to be kind, to speak good words, to do good deeds, that's hard. Lord, please grant us grace as your followers 
to, to live out of the reality of the great facts of the gospel that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming again. And Lord, please change us and transform us into your image so that we might live into what you have called us to be. We ask that you would do this for your namesake and glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table on page 